everything that you're seeing now is sort of a, a preview to this really horror film that we have going on now called the Trump presidency. And to those that don't believe this, the sequel to it, 2020 horror, is going to be even worse than the 2016 one. Worst sequel ever. Thank you for the reminder, Michael Cohen. Hmm. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon, which is on fire on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, which had an election yesterday on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe, even during pandemics and wildfires. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. We have got a lot to uh, get to today. Oh, oh says me. For from, a change. From bradblog.com. <laughs> oh, I yeah. forgot to mention where I was That's being me. swell at. Uh, yes, for a change, we've got a lot to get to today. If my math is correct, however, the penultimate state primaries of the 2020 election were held on Tuesday in New Hampshire and Rhode Island with just one more state to go. That would be next Tuesday in Delaware. So get out and vote Joe Biden's home state. Or at least make sure that you get your vote-by-mail ballots in on time. You might want to hand-deliver them at this point, just saying. Uh, my apologies, by the way, for my failure to mention Tuesday's elections on Tuesday's show because, uh, well, to be frank, the Labor Day holiday on Monday kind of confused me. <laughs> and it made me think that election uh, that election day was today instead of yesterday. So anyway, I hope voters in New Hampshire and Rhode Island uh, did not make the same mistake that I did. Oh, my. In any event, as uh, Howie Klein predicted last week on this show, no big surprises today out of either uh, New Hampshire or Rhode Island, though New Hampshire is a key battleground state that Donald Trump reportedly lost by 3,000, just 3,000 votes back in 2016. 
So it's worth keeping your eyes on, if only for that reason. According to the New York Times today, Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican, and Senator Gene Shaheen, a Democrat, both easily won their primary races in New Hampshire on Tuesday, reinforcing the state's status as a battleground eight weeks ahead of the general election. When the top two uh, down-ballot races will now feature popular incumbents, one from each party in New Hampshire. Trump visited the state the day after accepting his renomination last month, and his campaign has identified it as a possible pickup opportunity this year. After losing it by just one point in 2016, though recent polling does not necessarily seem to agree. It shows Biden ahead of Trump in the Granite State, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average, by almost 10 points. So that's theoretically good news for those of us who believe in democracy and who... Uh, Oppose autocracy and fascism. Oh, Just indeed. Saying. But, uh, you know, don't relax. You can never relax when it comes to this election. Well said, Desi Doyen. There will be no relaxing here. <laughs> don't you worry. Most of the suspense, uh, according to The New York Times, centered on the contest to pick the November challengers to Republican Governor Sununu and Democratic Senator Shaheen. Corky Messner, the Trump-endorsed Senate candidate on the Republican side, held off a rival guy by the name of Don Balduck, who had blasted Democrats as, quote, a bunch of liberal socialist pansies. The, the remark was criticized as being homophobic, which I would think would have uh, vaulted Balduck into the lead in the uh, Republican presidential primary. Too bad Donald Trump hadn't heard that remark before his endorsement. I'm sure that would have swayed him there. Uh, the guy who won it, however, Messner, uh, who will be running uh, against Senator Shaheen, uh, he's a wealthy lawyer. He built his law career in Denver. He did not register to vote in New Hampshire until 2018. So he was forced during the primary to fend off charges of being a carpetbagger. Nonetheless, with the help of Trump's endorsement, uh, it seems like he's uh, got over that particular hump, at least in the primary. We'll see how that plays against Shaheen in the general, where a Granite State poll last week finds Shaheen holding a nearly 20-point lead over Messner, who, the Washington Post notes, started a foundation to provide scholarships to underprivileged high school students. Well, that's nice for a Republican, isn't sure. it? Sure. Um, but the Post also notes that the foundation has awarded just one single scholarship in 10 years. Really? Hmm. So, yeah, sounds like another nonprofit foundation. Scam? Grift. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Trump endorsed him. In the uh, Democratic governor's primary, Dan Feltis, I think is how you say his name, the majority leader of the state Senate. He appears to have defeated Andrew Volinsky. Uh, a Bernie Sanders-backed opponent, though Feltis is said to have progressive credentials of his own. He favors raising the minimum wage, paid family leave, getting the state to 100% renewable energy by 2050. How's that? Mm, it could be better, but it'll do. We'll take it. All right. Uh, as in other state primaries, uh, since the vi coronavirus outbreak began, the election was marked by a huge spike in absentee ballots, an eight-fold increase over the 2016 primary. According to the New Hampshire Secretary of State, in-person voters were asked 
not required, but asked to wear masks. And while almost everyone did, there were some who reportedly refused. Election officials at some polling places apparently accommodated maskless voters in outdoor tents that were then disinfected. Nice to make them go through all of that effort for uh, these jerks who just won't wear a mask. Uh, in any event, not sure how that's going to hold up in November in New Hampshire as far as outdoor voting goes. So enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, last week, uh, the president's campaign actually pulled back television ads that it had booked for New Hampshire for this week for some reason suggesting that the race there may be less competitive than Trump has uh, had hoped for. In Rhode Island, meanwhile, which held primaries also on Tuesday, only one of its two congressional districts featured competitive races. Uh, Congressman Jim Longovan, a 10-term Democrat, defeated 33-year-old progressive challenger Dylan Conley, while Robert Lancia won the Republican nomination for the right to challenge Longovan in the second congressional district just two months from now. So while the news in New Hampshire, uh, in any event, may be pretty good today, uh, we've got some really good news for voters in another arguably swingier swing state coming up with my guest Mark Joseph Stern in just a few minutes. And this uh, good news comes from from a court of law. And if Mark's reporting is correct, it will not be overturned by a higher court. Yay. And it means that the state, as of today, now has another 100,000 eligible voters for the first time in, oh, about 150 years. So stay tuned for that good news and the bizarre news that broke last night regarding Donald Trump's latest attempt to avoid accountability for anything, in this case, in a defamation suit that involves an alleged rape and a dress said to have his DNA on it, uh, all of which might have otherwise come to light before this year's presidential election, uh, but for a um, very friendly move from Donald Trump's DOJ late on Tuesday night. Mark will be here to explain that as well. But as I was talking to him earlier today, Mark asked uh, how we were doing out here in California, and I told him we were fine, nowhere near the fires currently, but that it was hotter than hell over the weekend, etc. He said, I know. Why isn't that front page news? It's climate change happening right now. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was front page on news on our show, at least, as we covered the fires out here in California at the top of yesterday's show in, in detail, along with their link to our worsening climate crisis. And today, that is still going to be front page news here. Uh, as I've been uh, seeing these pictures all day today and last night of this eerie, shocking, deep red light in photographs all over the Northern California Bay Area from the from, I guess, from the smoke, from all the fires. And, and even though there were no fires nearby, do you have any explanation for those <laughs> red photographs that we've oh, been yes, seeing? Oh, that, yes, that orange that you see in yeah. all of these photographs across the western United States. That's because the smoke particles scatter the blue light of the visible light spectrum, and that allows only the yellow, orange, and red light to reach the surface really? of the planet. Yeah. 
Cool. Does that explain then my uh, the the blood red moon that yes. I saw on Sunday night? Yes, it's the smoke that changes the colors that you actually see. Even though there's no uh, fires immediately nearby, there's enough smoke in, in the, the air atmosphere. in the atmosphere to cause Correct. this uh, happening. Wow. Well, that explains uh, that explains a lot. Uh, similarly, today we're seeing those kind of horrible red photographs in the state of Oregon. As fires there now have gotten really bad and have now destroyed hundreds of homes today, according to AP. Windblown wildfires raging across the Pacific Northwest destroyed hundreds of homes in Oregon, according to the governor on Wednesday, who warned this could be the greatest loss of human life and property due to wildfire in our state's history. Firefighters struggled to contain blazes fanned by 50-mile-per-hour wind gusts, and officials in some western Oregon communities gave residents, quote, go-now orders to evacuate, giving them just minutes to flee their homes. Now, we've got a, a number of affiliates uh, in that area, broadcast affiliates up there, so I I'm hoping that our listeners are okay up there on uh, KYAQ on the Central Coast, Queso in Cottage Grove, and uh, KEPW in Eugene, Oregon. Hope you guys are doing okay today. Please feel free to drop me an email, by the way, to, to let us know. Uh, you can reach me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Let us know how things are going up there today. The uh, blazes are uh, burning in a large swath of both Washington State and Oregon that rarely experience these type of intense fire activities because of the Pacific Northwest's normally cool and wet climate. It is neither today. The fires trapped firefighters and civilians behind fire lines in Oregon, leveled an entire small town in eastern Washington, Oregon Governor uh, Kate Brown warned that the devastation could be overwhelming from the fires that exploded during a late summer windstorm. She said everyone must be on high alert, warning the next several days are going to be extremely difficult. We are currently facing a statewide fire emergency. Over the last 24 hours, Oregon has experienced unprecedented fire with significant damage and devastating consequences across the entire state. I want to be upfront in saying that we expect to see a great deal of loss, both in structures and in human lives. This could be the greatest loss of human lives and property due to wildfire in our state's history. Early reports indicate that the towns of Detroit and Central Oregon, Blue River and Vida in Lane County and Phoenix and Talent in Southern Oregon are substantially destroyed. Hundreds of homes have been lost and we continue to carry out mass evacuations across the entire state. Fortunately, numerous Oregonians have been rescued from harm's way, including even pulling people from safety in the rivers. But many more Oregonians will need to evacuate their homes in the coming hours to ensure their safety. Right now, more than 300,000 acres are burning across the state, which is the equivalent of over 500 square miles. The worst fire conditions in three decades persist. Dry air, dry brush, and hot winds. 
This means everyone must be on high alert. Our number one priority right now is saving lives. As such, our statewide strategy is focused on life safety, evacuation, and protecting structures where possible. This is truly an all hands on deck moment for Oregon. The next several days are going to be extremely difficult. If you hear only one thing today, hear this. Please pay attention to the directions from firefighters, local officials, and emergency responders. If you are asked to evacuate, do so immediately. Your choices to evacuate, to help others to safety will save lives, including possibly your own. It was Oregon Governor Kate Brown uh, talking about these terrible fires now in Oregon uh, and all up and down the uh, west uh, western coast here, I guess. Governor in uh, Washington State, Governor Jay Ensley said that more than 330,000 acres in that state have burned during a 24-hour period. That is an area larger than the acreage that normally burns during entire fire seasons. From spring to fall, about 80 percent of the small eastern uh, Washington farming town of Malden was leveled by flames, including the town's fire station, post office, city hall and library. And once again, throughout this entire AP article, uh, they failed to even mention the phrase climate change in their reporting as if, you know, oh, darn the luck, another bad fire season for some unknown reason. In uh, his own response to the California fires uh, yesterday, I think this was? Yes. California Governor Gavin Newsom did not fail to mention it. I have no patience, and I say this lovingly, not as an ideologue, but as someone who prides himself on being open to argument, interested in evidence, but I quite literally have no patience for climate change deniers. Uh, It simply follows uh, completely inconsistent that point of view with the reality on the ground, the facts as we are experiencing. You may not believe it intellectually, but your own eyes, your own experiences tell a different story, particularly out here in the West Coast of the United States and particularly here in the state of California. Some of what we predicted, which people felt was extreme at the time, uh, has now presented itself much earlier than even those extreme predictions. Governor Gavin Newsom out here in California. And speaking of climate change deniers, well, we got one of them in the Oval Office pretty much ignoring all of this, even as he's also denying rape allegations against him that include, yes, a dress with some DNA on it. But he's got some big time help now in that effort, at least to evade accountability. We will discuss that. And, frankly, much better news. I promise much better news. Actually, bona fide good news today for voters in one of the most closely divided states in the union. Both of those stories are now coming up next with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. No one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies. Yeah, telling only lies. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, we have got some bona fide good news today uh, to report, as I said, on the upcoming election in a key swing state. And while our friend Slate's ace legal reporter, Mark Joseph Stern, often joins us on this program to explain horrible news, I figured we could, uh, you know, use a break, a bit of a break from all of that for a few precious minutes. But first, before we get there, just so we don't get too comfortable, some other news broke late last night that I need to ask Mark about. While I don't know if I would describe it as horrible news, it is bizarre and its ramifications could be exceedingly troubling if this new legal gambit gambit by uh, Donald Trump's fixer and attorney general Bill Barr actually works. The Justice Department moved on Tuesday night to replace President Trump's private legal team with government lawyers to defend him against a defamation suit by the author E. Jean Carroll, who has accused him of raping her in a Manhattan department store in the 1990s. In what the New York Times describes as a highly unusual legal move, in fact, it is unprecedented as far as I can tell, at least in a case involving the president of the United States, lawyers for the Justice Department said in court papers that Trump was acting in his official capacity as president when he denied ever knowing E. Jean Carroll and thus could be defended by government lawyers, in effect, underwriting his defense with taxpayer money and in a move that would end up, if successful, killing the case entirely. Over at Slate, Stern and our other Slate legal friend, Dahlia Lithwick, helpfully summarized the case in their report this morning. They note that Carroll sued Trump in state court in New York for defamation in November of 2019 when, in response to a book she had published alleging that he had raped her in a Bergdor Bergdorf Goodman department store changing room in the 90s, the president responded that he had never met her, even though a photograph showed the two of them together, and that she was fabricating her claims just to sell books. Trump also claimed that the story didn't happen, couldn't have happened, and that because he would have never raped the advice columnist because she, quote, was not my type. Yes, that was, as Stern and Lithwick note, his horrifying means of refuting the rape claim. Carol's suit claimed that Trump's statements were false, defamatory, and damaging to her reputation, and she sought punitive damages. As part of her suit, she requested a DNA sample to compare Trump's with DNA found on the dress that she says she was wearing when the assault occurred. Yes, there is supposedly a dress, again, with evidence of the alleged rape here. 
As the uh, Times notes, a state judge issued a ruling last month that potentially opened the door to Trump being deposed in the case before the election in November. And Carroll's lawyers have also requested that he provide a DNA sample to determine whether his genetic material is, in fact, on the dress that Carroll said she was wearing at the time of the encounter. Back to Slate now. As the Trumpian playbook requires, the president first attempted to get the lawsuit thrown out, arguing that the New York courts did not have jurisdiction over him because he does not reside in the state, which is questionable in and of itself. But in January, a justice of the New York Supreme Court rejected that claim. Just last month, another New York state justice denied another effort to delay the litigation, finding that the U.S. Supreme Court's July decision regarding a grand jury subpoena for Trump's financial records in a separate case, that permits a state court to exercise jurisdiction over a sitting president. Trump's filing in the Carroll litigation in New York state was uh, due this week, but on Tuesday, the Justice Department moved to replace Trump's personal defense lawyers and to defend him themselves, yes, with taxpayer dollars at the federal instead of state level, citing the Federal Tort Claims Act, which happens to give federal employees immunity from certain lawsuits. Really? Yeah, really. Here to explain this bizarre, unusual, and seemingly unprecedented move by the DOJ on behalf of a sitting president. Before we get to the much better, I promise, election-related court ruling out of the great swing state of North Carolina is the one and only Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and so much more for Slate. Hopefully all rested up after goofing off the entire summer while the Supreme Court was out of session. And he's now back, ready to save the world in the 55 days we have left before Election Day. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hello, I am so glad to be here, although I'm going to have to say I'm trying to filter the phrase election day out of my yes. vocabulary entirely. Yes. There is a long window during which you can vote. November 3rd is the last day you can vote, mm -hmm. and that's what I am now calling it, the last day for voting. So everyone listening should remember, you don't leave something this important until the last day. you got to bank that vote well in advance of November 3rd. Thank you. I've, had, uh, I've struggled with that myself because, uh, you know, we talk about November 3rd as the election day. It's 55 days away, not that I'm counting, but you're right. That's the last chance to vote. Uh, the first chance, uh, even in states like uh, North Carolina, we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, they've already begun sending out absentee ballots. So, yes, the election, the 2020 election, is now underway. Okay, Counselor, with that out of the way, if you could be so kind to first <laughs> explain what the, uh, I think, rarely invoked Federal Tort Claims Act actually is and does, and then we'll get to the specifics in the E. Jean Carroll case here. Yeah, so we have to talk about that act in connection with the Westfall Act and this sort of regime of federal laws that are designed to protect federal employees from lawsuits. So the United States government is sort of inherently immune from lawsuits uh, unless it waives that immunity and says, okay, you can sue us over this, this, and this. 
might sound odd, but the government's actually done that. One of the things it has not done is allowed itself to be sued for defamation. So you cannot sue the United States government for defaming you. Now, in theory, you can sue individual employees who work for the United States government for defaming you. Say somebody at the DMV stands up and accuses you of, uh, I don't know, uh, extramarital affairs, you know, in the middle of the workday. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could sue them for defamation. But the problem is uh, that the United States government can actually step in if you try to sue a federal employee and say, you know, you're suing this federal employee, but you're suing them for something that they did on the job as part of their official work, as part of their scope of their employment. And so what, who you're really suing isn't that individual, mm-hmm. but the U.S. government itself. So we're going to step in here, and we're going to take out the person you actually sued and replace ourselves, the U.S. government, mm-hmm. and then, because you can't sue the U.S. government for defamation, we're going to ask the courts to throw out your lawsuit. So it's kind of like a little bit of a Rube Goldberg machine, where when, when someone accuses a federal employee of, of slandering, libeling, defaming them, the Justice Department, representing the U.S. government, can step in and kill that suit without anybody fully understanding what's going on. Most mm-hmm. of the time this stuff happens pretty quietly um, because it's such a complicated series of maneuvers. It usually happens in legal papers, and it usually doesn't involve an employee of the government as high profile as the President of the United States. So if it was somebody at the DMV who made that statement that you used in your hypo there, uh, it would be a, a matter of deciding, well... Did that person at the DMV, were they acting in their official capacity as a, a, a worker for the DMV, or were they just being defamatory as a private citizen, essentially? Right? right. That's one right. distinction that's important here. That's a key distinction. And I guess since it's federal, we could say the Department of Transportation, okay. right? DMV right. usually states. So, so uh, another distinction here is the context in which the statement was made, not mm-hmm. just the substance of the statement, but what the individual was doing when they made the statement. Uh, you know, you could imagine uh, that, that over the course of a uh, federal employee's job, they have to ask difficult questions or mm-hmm. uh, file reports that might contain errors. And the goal here is to make sure that they aren't sued over those reports mm-hmm. if they have a mistake. Right. I think that makes sense. Yes. Uh, but, but if they're saying this on their own accord uh, in a personal statement outside of their employment, then it's pretty hard to see how in the world they were acting as the United States government rather than just some private citizen who messed up and committed defamation. Well, that is where you are clearly mistaken, Mr. Stern, <laughs> because the DOJ's motion says... Quote, because Trump was acting as president when he publicly denied as false the allegations made by the plaintiff, uh, they say the case must therefore be moved to federal district court, out of state court, and that the United States must become the defendant. So the argument is he denied as false this allegation in the Oval Office while acting as president, while answering questions from reporters, which, as I read it, means that the argument is, you know, that any time the president answers a question from a reporter, the president is acting as the president and there is actually nothing that he could say or, I guess, do uh, in, in that role that would be unlawful uh, under this Federal Tort Claims Act, according to the DOJ. 
I think that is the narrowest interpretation of the DOJ's argument. I think that the broader one, and probably uh, what they're going for here, or what they will say in the coming days and weeks, is that the president is constantly on the job, that he can never really act as a private citizen, as a civilian, when he is uh, you know, the head of the executive branch, because at every second of the day, he is responsible for leading the nation. This was an argument that the Justice Department used in the case uh, involving a Manhattan uh, prosecutor, Cy Vance, mm-hmm. when he tried to have a grand jury subpoena Trump's tax returns. The Justice Department came in and said, you can't subpoena this sitting president because he is so busy. He's got so much on his plate. He's constantly acting as president Mm -hmm. that merely by forcing him to respond to this subpoena or even forcing his associates to respond will distract him from his presidential duties. The Supreme Court shut down that argument, and yet here we are again. The Justice Department is making it in an even more radical context. Yeah, I mean, in that case with Cy Vance, it wasn't even the president who was being subpoenaed. It was his financial firms uh, and his banks that uh, somehow he was too busy to deal with. Yeah, they didn't. uh, The Supreme Court didn't fall for that. But this is a different. I mean, did they actually cite the Federal Tort Claims Act in that uh, in that particular case? Because no. So, you know, it's a different question. Vance, I think it, it bears heavily on this case, obviously, but it's not the exact same question. It didn't resolve this case. And there's very little case law on, on this particular issue. The Supreme Court has said that uh, the federal judiciary can review these attempts to substitute the United States government in for a federal employee who's been sued for something, uh, and that the courts can actually stop it if they think it's improper. And so this will be battled out in federal court in the coming weeks, I think. We will see uh, a judge, a really good judge, Judge Kaplan in the Southern District of New York, try to figure out if this was an appropriate maneuver uh, or if it stretches the bounds of the law. I, I happen to think it really stretches the law way too far, but we will see what happens. It, it certainly does seem to. The uh, attorney for Miss um, uh, Carroll, uh, uh, Roberta Kaplan, uh, said that Trump's efforts to wield the power of the U.S. government to evade responsibility for his private misconduct is without precedent and shows even more starkly how far he is willing to go to prevent the truth from coming out. So even though the lawsuit in question here uh, regards Trump's allegedly defamatory comments while in office, the comments were in response to something that had nothing to do with his official capacity as president. It regards allegations that he raped someone about 25 years before he became president. Has the act ever been tested for something like that that regards something that happened completely separate from the uh, official office being used here to uh, you know, defend the person in question? Not to my knowledge. Um, I, I did a brief review of some of these cases, and they all involve things that happened wha- while an individual was mm-hmm. working for the federal government. And, uh, you know, every part of the offense or the alleged offense uh, was, uh, you know, contemporary. It happened today. It happened now. This, what we're talking about now, happened a quarter century ago, as you mentioned. And Trump is trying to sort of 
bootstrap it into his presidency, which is pretty perverse, by saying, oh, well, you know, I made this comment during the presidency. And so uh, the, the, the offense itself, we can just sort of pretend is a legal fiction that that falls under my presidency as well, that my, my denigration, my misogyny, my sexual predation, that all of these things are official acts by the president, by me, and that you cannot separate out my acts from presidential acts, that they're all bound up, that they're one and the same. Now, that said, if, uh, well, the, the, the little um, uh, case law that we seem to have on this, you uh, at Slate and others elsewhere have cited uh, what seems to be the most similar, I guess, attempted use of the Federal Tort Claims Act when a Republican member of Congress from North Carolina told a reporter that his wife was uncomfortable living across the street from the Council on American Islamic Relations or CARE right after 9-11 because the congressman falsely claimed that CARE is the fundraising arm for Hezbollah. Now, CARE sued, but the Federal Tort Claims Act was invoked and the case was tossed out after the federal court determined that uh, talking to a reporter was, in fact, part of the congressman's authorized duties, so he could not be sued for what he said or did while talking to the reporter. A, am I summarizing that uh, case correctly? And B, if so, and if that ruling stood back in uh, 2016, I think, at the D.C. Court of Appeals, it actually sounds like Trump and the DOJ would have a pretty good argument here in the use of this seemingly terrible law, no? So it's actually from 2006, and it's okay. from the D.C. Circuit. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think that that case is obviously their, the, the Trump administration and the Justice Department's strongest precedent here. I think they're still going to run into a couple of problems. First, just to be very clear, this is now being litigated in New York, right, which falls under the Second Circuit. The D.C. Circuit decision is not binding precedent. So the Second Circuit is free to say, we think that our sister circuit got it wrong and go a different route. And that actually happens all the time. These are the circuit splits that the Supreme Court usually eventually resolves. So mm. it's not binding here. Uh, another issue is that the, the D.C. Circuit did not examine a very interesting threshold question, which is whether the president even has the power to invoke this law at all. So if you go in and read the law, it, it speaks of certain federal employees, not all of them, mm -hmm. but certain federal employees. And one type of employee who's covered is someone who's employed by a federal agency. Um, so think about like the Department of Transportation, mm -hmm. the Department of Labor. Trump seems to be saying that the president is an agent of the presidency, which is an agency. And that is a very novel theory and a novel conception of the presidency that I don't think has ever been tested, let alone confirmed mm -hmm. in court. So he is claiming that he falls under this act when it's really not clear that he does, that he can use it. He has other legal tools at his disposal. It's not totally clear that this is one of them. But even if he, he clears those hurdles, you know, even if the Second Circuit decides that the D.C. Circuit got it right and thinks that the president gets to invoke this act, it's no sure thing that the Second Circuit will still rule for Trump. Because if you look at the Second Circuit case, what was going on there, it all happened and was related to this congressman's political and, and uh, sort of legal work, mm -hmm. right? This was an attempt to bolster his own image in advance of a re-election, uh, and this was an attempt to explain why he and his wife had made this move 
that, that seem to be scandalous or potentially, uh, you know, could potentially drag down his reputation. And all of this occurred when he was a congressman, mm-hmm. okay? The, 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 the alpha and omega of this right. was when he was in Congress serving the government. What Trump is doing now, like I said, is trying to bring in all of these events that happened before he served in the government, before he was mm-hmm. president, and bootstrap those onto the one statement that he made while he was president. But this lawsuit does not exclusively involve that statement. You cannot separate the one defamatory statement out from the predicate offense or the alleged offense. Gotcha. So I know that's a little bit sort of complicated, but I do think that there's a very strong argument that even if the D.C. Circuit got that other case right, it does not necessarily mean that Trump has to win this. Lawsuit. Okay, I have to uh, take a break here and, and come back momentarily uh, on this uh, to cheer us all up with this good news out of North Carolina. <laughs> but very quickly, uh, two questions on this uh, case. Uh, one, if the federal court, in fact, uh, decides that, yes, this case should be moved from the state court to the federal court uh, under the Federal Torts, uh, Tort Claims Act, that would effectively kill the case entirely because uh, the, under this act, a uh, government official cannot be sued for defamation. So the case right. is over. End of story. Correct? And then the other question, with all of this in mind, uh, while perhaps a, a Hail Mary, ultimately, uh, legally, the, the move seems to simply be about further delaying this case beyond the election. No, and, and will, in fact, this legal move do exactly that, keep this from, you know, keep him from being deposed before the election, from that DNA sample on his dress before the election? Will that do the job here, no matter whether this case is legally successful or not? Uh, you know, I think... Um I think it will, unfortunately. I think that this is a problem that legal reporters like me have dealt with all throughout the Trump presidency, where we talk about some kind of move that Trump or the Justice Department has done. We say why it's nonsense, but we kind of miss the fact that the real reason for it isn't to win in court, but Mm -hmm. to drag things out, right, to run down the clock. And I think that's what's happening here, most likely. Trump was due to file his response in this case when the DOJ leapt in to try to replace him. Trump was staring down a DNA test mm-hmm. uh, to compare with, with E. Jean Carroll's dress, right? Yep. Staring down a potential deposition. He does not want to do that right before an election, understandably. Yep. And so I do fear that this is another example of, of Attorney General William Barr really interfering in the 2020 election by helping the, as the sitting president avoid a politically damaging uh, deposition or DNA test at least until the election is over yep. by running down the clock with these frivolous motions. Yep. Uh, by the way, can she, uh, if, if, if Trump is successful there uh, and that case is thrown out, can uh, she refile after he is no longer president or, or is he still protected by the federal mm-hmm. torts claim that? He will still be protected if he is protected at all. If he can seize right. this while in office, then he can seize it, period, because you know he is claiming that it all falls under his official gotcha. president. Act. Gotcha. All right. Well, of course, yeah. <sighs> well, let's take a break. Come back with some good news that I don't think Bill Barr or Donald Trump will be able to work around regarding voters in the great state of North Carolina. Uh, Mark, uh, stand by speaking with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. We'll take a quick break and come back with him and the good news for a change. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Yeah, we really do need some uh, new Carolina songs. If anyone's got some, uh, my email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. Let me know. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. We're speaking with the great Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter at Slate. And yes, we've got some bona fide good court news regarding voting today out of perhaps the swingiest of all swing states, certainly one of the most closely divided, and that would be North Carolina, of all places. Yes, good news out of North Carolina on voting. And it is good news unless Mark Joseph Stern decides to ruin it for us, as he sometimes does. Uh, But to get there, let me I've got to very briefly sort of go through the state of Florida to underscore the importance of this. I'm going to try to do this really quickly, Mark, and you can correct me if I screw up. But in 2018, Florida voters adopted a statewide ballot initiative by a huge bipartisan 65 to 35 point landslide uh, to restore voting rights to former felons in what was at the time one of just about three states which barred those with felony convictions from voting for life. The state's new Republican governor at that point, Ron DeSantis, uh, who won his election on the same ballot by less than a a single percentage point, he quickly asked the GOP-dominated state legislature to pass a bill that would essentially gut that voters' uh, constitutional amendment for initiative by requiring that before former felons can register to vote, they have to pay off all of their court-imposed fines and fees. Well, that law was adopted by the Republican state legislature, and it was immediately challenged in court by voting rights groups who won the case. The federal judge overseeing it ruled that the law was in fact unconstitutional. It amounted essentially to a poll tax because if you had the money to pay off the fines and fees, you're allowed to vote. But if you didn't have the money, you couldn't. Seemingly the very definition of a poll tax. So more good news for Florida voters. However, DeSantis and the Republicans appealed the ruling, which has now been stayed, I believe, by the appellate court. So for now and for the critical 2020 presidential election, that uh, unconstitutional law, I believe, will remain in place, potentially barring some one and a half million former felons in Florida from being able to vote, and crucially, one out of every four black male Floridians from being able to participate in this year's elections, which now brings us to North Carolina. 
which, while allowing felons uh, who have completed their sentences in the state, as well as all uh, parole and probation, though they're allowed to register to vote, but it also, uh, North Carolina law, had also barred those who had not paid court-imposed fines and fees from being allowed to vote. In, in their case, however... The fines and fees law was about 150 years old, and it put it was put in place following Reconstruction after the Civil War in order to, as the uh, state judge determined last week, to specifically prevent black voters from voting. Now, this law in North Carolina has no small consequences in a state like that. Barack Obama barely won it in 2008 by about 13,000 votes less than half a point. In 2012, it swung back to uh, Mitt Romney by about two points. In 2016, Donald Trump won the state while on the same statewide ballot, North Carolina elected a Democratic governor. So yes, every vote counts in North Carolina and as what I said is the swingiest of swing states. Now, Mark Joseph Stern reports at Slate this week, however, that on Friday, a North Carolina court dramatically expanded the number of voters eligible to participate in the 2020 election by ruling that the state may not disenfranchise citizens who own fines, who owe, who owe fines, fees and other debts from a felony conviction. And Mark reports that while the court limited its order to those affected by uh, wealth based voter suppression, that would be a poll tax. Its uh, reasoning portends a broader ruling in the near future that could restore voting rights to 70,000 more North Carolinians on probation or parole. But before we get to those 70,000 more, Mark, the Friday ruling, if I understand it correctly, means that 100,000 North Carolinians previously denied the right to vote in the state are right now eligible to register and vote in this year's presidential election? Yes, that is correct. That is the upshot of the ruling. Uh, I should say that the, the state of North Carolina, much like the state of Florida, has really relied on a kind of chaos and negligence to keep people disenfranchised. And a lot of those 100,000 people may not have known whether they could actually vote before. The, the system here for letting formerly incarcerated people know whether or not they're allowed to vote is incredibly opaque, mm. and really the state exploits it to frighten people out of even registering. This is something we see in all of these uh, red states with voter suppression laws, right? The confusion is the point. Mm. So some of these 100,000 people may have been able to vote before, weren't sure. Some of them could not vote at all, and all of them were afraid of prosecution if they tried. This decision clears the way for all of them to move forward, to register to vote, to cast their ballot without any fear of prosecution, because a court has now confirmed beyond any doubt that they have a fundamental constitutional right to vote in the 2020 election. This is huge news in a state like North Carolina, as, as close as it has been in recent elections. And right now, I think uh, the real clear politics um, pre-election polling average pushed Biden about one and a half points ahead of Trump, essentially a statistical tie there. So another 100,000 votes, again, in a state that went to Obama by 13,000, uh, could make a just a huge difference. You write, however, about how laws like this are, in fact, quote, rooted in overt 
white supremacy and that that point came into play in in the New York uh, I'm sorry in the North Carolina case can you can you describe uh, what came out in that case as you quoted it in your story yeah and, and I think we have to give credit to the the folks who litigated this case they just did a brilliant job on the history hired uh, North Carolina historians to dig into why the state began disenfranchising uh, former felons in the first place. And the answer, unsurprisingly, <laughs> was overt racism and an attempt to, quote, preserve white supremacy. Basically what happened was after Reconstruction, as federal troops were literally pulling out of the state, uh, a bunch mm-hmm. of racists convened to try to figure out how to stop black people from voting, and this was their preferred solution because they discussed that uh, they could easily disenfranchise people who had been convicted of a crime, any crime, mm-hmm. and then just go around accusing black people of crimes, convicting them in kangaroo courts, and stripping them of the right to vote forever. That was the goal and the purpose and the effect of this law. And frankly, if you look at how it's working today, not much has changed. Black people in North Carolina are dramatically disproportionately disenfranchised compared to white people. And, you know, we all know that that is no coincidence that our criminal justice system operates in a very racist manner and prevents people from participating in their own democracy. That's what's going on here, and that's what the court really acknowledged at the outset. This was an impressive ruling because it didn't pretend like there wasn't something malicious going on in the background here. Mm -hmm. The court didn't pretend like this law just suddenly sprung onto the books. It actually went through the history of why it exists and talked about how the only three black state representatives in the 1970s in North Carolina tried to repeal it, but whites stood in their way and refused to let them repeal it. Uh, Uh, And mm -hmm. one of those black representatives actually testified in this case and said, I tried my best, but these folks, these white folks, just wouldn't let us repeal this law and restore full civil rights to our community. So this is a fundamentally racist law, and the court acknowledged as much, and I think that's a really important thing for judges to do. You detail in your report at Slate.com, Mark Joseph Stern, this that it's in fact an 1877 law and that when it was passed, the arguments made were that it was necessary to stop, quote, the honest vote of a white man from being, quote, offset by the vote of some Negro. Its purpose, alongside other Jim Crow measures like the literacy test, was to, quote, secure white supremacy. Who, who are you quoting in that? Where, where do we get those quotes that this was specifically meant to offset the vote of some Negro? Because, boy, I'll tell you, that's resonating in my brain 150 years later when the state of Florida just now, just, you know, a year or two, a year or so ago, passed this law to do exactly the same thing that North Carolina was doing to uh, offset the vote by uh, some Negro back in 1877. God, when you put it that way, it's so bleak. Florida, as you know, is my home state. Oh, <laughs> but sorry. I think you're, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think you're absolutely correct that that is still kind of what's, what's going on here. So these quotes come from a really terrific expert report uh, that was filed in this case by a UNC historian where he, he's an expert on this law, and he dug back into the, uh, the record of the floor notes 
that went that that uh, from when P- legislators mm-hmm. were debating this bill and the convention notes from when uh, legislators came together to draft new laws and eventually new constitution for the state of North Carolina. You know, th- these folks weren't shy about their purpose. They didn't pretend like they were up to anything else. They thought that this was a noble endeavor, and so they actually said out loud what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. You can go back and read all this stuff in the historical record, and I link to these reports in my piece. Um, and so I think what's really changed today is that when Florida Republicans try to do the same thing, they pretend that it's about, uh, I don't know, honoring lawfulness in the Constitution, and they just try to conceal the fact that it's really about making sure that, yep. you know, white people's votes aren't offset by racial minorities. Very quickly here, uh, you report that another ruling could be coming from this same court, uh, though I don't know if it would be in time for the 2020 election that would lo- allow, on top of the 100,000 that I, I believe, by the way, they, they can, that is that ruling uh, done? They can vote today, uh, register to vote and vote today, these uh, 100,000 uh, who have uh, fines and fees outstanding still? Oh, absolutely, and they should. Uh, okay, good. Well, th- this uh, court could also allow another 70,000 that are currently disenfranchised. Uh, how is that group different, this other 70,000? Yeah, so these are individuals who are still on parole or probation, and for reasons other than their inability to pay fines and fees. So, you know, courts impose all of these fines and fees in North Carolina. As soon as you encounter them, you have to pay hundreds of dollars just to appear in court, just to have a public defender. You have to pay for your own probation. And the state will actually keep you on probation if you can't afford to pay off those fines and fees, which incurs another several thousand dollars of debt each year. It's really a vicious circle. So what the court did was that anyone who's disenfranchised solely because of that, because of these fines and fees, which is a huge number of people, you can vote right away. Uh, the rest of you, people who are, say, on parole for some kind of drug crime, right, who are out of prison, who are free but are still under state supervision, we're not going to extend to you the right to vote. Not yet. But we're going to hold a trial on that question Mm. in the near future. And we actually think that you've made a very strong case. And once we have fleshed out the history here, uh, we're probably going to decide that this entire law was motivated by illicit racism and strike down the whole disenfranchisement Mm. scheme. So I think this is... This is one earthquake, but it's, uh, there's going to be another one in the near future because North Carolina's state judiciary is very progressive. There are a lot of badass women of color on North Carolina <laughs> State Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and I think these individuals are going to say, we cannot tolerate a racist law from 150 years ago. Yeah. We have to move forward. Now, that won't come before the election, I suspect. Uh, no, it that won't, That second part of this. But with a, I think, is a 7 to 1 a liberal majority on the uh, North Carolina State Supreme Court? Six to Six, six to one right six, now. Yeah. Six to one. Yeah, that means that because this, and this is crucial, because this is a, a state ruling, not a federal ruling, it therefore cannot be put on hold by the GOP's stolen U.S. Supreme Court under the so-called Purcell principle that they now claim prevents last-minute changes to election laws. This is a done deal. Any appeal would simply go to those uh, badasses on the uh, six to one uh, state Supreme Court, correct? Yes. 
that's exactly right. And uh, the, the, those those ladies in the majority are not going to put up with any of the Republicans' nonsense. I can tell you that with a lot of confidence. So this you can tell me with confidence this is bona fide good news. There's yes. no secret appeals down the road. Some way Bill Barr, Donald Trump's going to come in <laughs> and ruin all of this. This is good news. We can leave today's show with a smile on our face. Everyone should be on their feet, dancing in joy. Mark Joseph Stern is the gleeful uh, reporter at uh, legal reporter at Slate.com. By the way, he has a comprehensive article on voting information for all 50 states that uh, wherever you are, you are going to need to make your plan to vote this year. You can do it now in, uh, well, pretty soon in any event, in a number of states around the country. Uh, So check that out. That is also at Slate.com. I will try to link to that uh, article. Mark Joseph Stern, great to talk to you again after your long summer off. It won't be that long before you uh, come back and I torture you here some more. Okay, so the the best kind of torture there is. Thank you, sir. Find his work at Slate.com and on the Twitter at MJS underscore DC. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure. Okay, and we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it and share it with your friends, family, and enemies at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our efforts at bradblog.com slash donate. That is a free service for all, but we do need your help if you can afford it. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. That's it. We will see you again uh, tomorrow, I hope, right here. Same Brad time, same Brad channel. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.